If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter number 8. This morning, Revelation chapters 8 and 9 is our text for today. I'm going to try to cover both of these chapters in what time we have. I think we can do that as there is one extended section within these two chapters best treated together. It is uh, refreshing to me to be back to consistent, systematic, verse-by-verse and chapter-by-chapter preaching after a brief break from that for the Christmas holiday and then some emphasis on disciple-making. I I walked into a conversation among some of our staff this week about preaching in general and contrast between topic-driven, topical preaching and verse-by-verse exposition of the Word. And uh, my commentary to them was, if you can show me something more exciting than locusts with golden heads, human faces, tails like snakes, and scorpion stingers, I'll preach that next Sunday. That's what our passage this morning is about. Hopefully in the time that we have together, we can sort of draw back some of the mystery that hangs over these two chapters and relish together the hope of the gospel as it's presented in these two chapters, Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Chapter 8 is pretty short. Chapter 9 is not very long. We're going to read both chapters in full. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse number 1. This is what the word of God says. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were rumblings of thunder and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they'd been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light, and the night as well. I looked again and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Locusts came out of the smoke on the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. 
They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. That torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses equipped for battle. Something like gold crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions so that, their tails, they, so that in their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. There are still two more woes to come after this. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. From the four horns of the gold altar that is before God, I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horsemen in my vision. The horsemen had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and from their mouths came fire and smoke and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads, and they inflict injury with them. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which are not able to see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. May God grant understanding and bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. These two chapters are just fascinating. Probably, if you're reading them for the first time this morning or you're reading them for the first time in a long time, there is a certain element of mystery about the way John describes his vision in these two chapters. Once you understand the source for John's symbolism and imagery, things become somewhat simpler within the chapter. For instance, in chapter 8, there seem to be two primary sources for John's symbols. In other words, he's getting his symbolism. He's painting this picture using images from two distinct sources. The first of those is the book of Exodus. You, you may have noticed along the way, the likelihood is that you Bible readers have recently read the plagues that God performed in Egypt as he brought the people of Israel as a nation out. The reason I know that is because it's the end of January and you're in your read the Bible through in a year programs, right? Everyone makes it through January and then things begin to sort of tail off. But we're still in January, so the strong likelihood is you're reading the book of Exodus and have recently read through those plagues. There is hail and there are locusts and there is fire and, and th th there is water that turns to blood. So much of the imagery of the plagues in Egypt is loosely applied in Revelation chapter 8, which is significant for a couple of reasons. Not the least of which is the flow of Revelation and, and, and the argument that John is building here. Back in chapter 7, we have an answer 
to the question that the first series of judgments ends with. The first series of judgments is the unfolding of the scrolls. Packaged within that seventh scroll are the seven trumpets. Those trumpets are sounding in the passage that we're reading this morning. This is the second coming of judgment. And then packaged within that seventh trumpet are the seven bowls, which is the next series of judgments, which we'll discuss at a later time in our study in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 7, we have this break to answer the question that Revelation 6 ends with. Specifically, the great day of God's wrath has come. And who is able to stand against it? And the answer to that question is the 144,000, the true Israel. Those from among ethnic Israel who have believed the message of the gospel and repented of their sin. They are able to withstand the judgment that is to come. God has saved them and he will keep them even in the midst of his wrath unfolding on the earth. And then there's this verse in verse 9 of Revelation 7. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Not only will all of true Israel withstand the day of judgment, but people of every tribe and tongue and nation who have entrusted their soul to Christ and have repented of their sin, they will stand. Who can stand? Everyone, Israel and Gentile alike, who have entrusted their soul in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. And then we have the use of this Exodus imagery in chapter 8 to speak of the judgments of God which are to come. Now here's the message. In the same way that God worked exclusive to Israel in the Exodus event of the book of Exodus, in great acts of judgment to, a, to deliver a people from their bondage and sin, in the same way that God used his acts of judgment to bring about the redemption of a nation and to establish a people for his praise and glory. So now, under the new covenant, God is calling together a people of every tribe and tongue and nation, and he's working in great acts of judgment to establish this people as his own to the praise, glory, and worship of his name. That's the subtle and often missed message of this great movement that God has in chapter 8. Now, a part of the background of chapter 8 and bleeding into chapter 9 is a recent event in Asia Minor's history. Remember, all of Revelation is written first to the seven churches of Asia Minor. The book of Revelation is written in 95 or 96 AD. There's broad agreement on that dating for the book of Revelation. But about 20 years prior, in AD 79, Mount Vesuvius erupts, and it sets chaos in motion in Asia Minor. Everyone in Asia Minor was impacted by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Now, in chapter 8, we don't get language like magma and volcanic eruption. We don't get the post-scientific terminology. But we get imagery that seems clearly connected to that moment in the history of Asia Minor. Instead of magma, you get something like a great mountain that's been set ablaze, cast into the sea. Instead of a scientific explanation like the sulfur from the magma and that eruption, it poisoned the water so that it was unpalatable. Instead, we get a star fell like wormwood and made the seas bitter. 
We get flashes of lightning, and we get the earth trembling, and we get thunder. We get the kind of imagery that we might, without scientific terminology, associate with the eruption of a great volcano. So John is reaching back into the living memory of his congregants, and he's citing their experience with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius to say that what is coming in the near future is dreadful and fearsome. And you've got points of reference for understanding just how amazing this move of God's judgment is truly going to prove to be. There's another source for imagery that we'll unpack later as we get into chapter 9. But I I want us to see something that's really basic in 8, 1 through 6 before we jump in to some of the more mysterious elements of our chapter. There's this principle in Revelation 8, 1 through 6 that ought to be precious to us this morning. Look at verse 1. The Bible says here, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I saw angels, the angels, the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. Smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God From the angel's hands, the angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were rumblings, thunder, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. As far back as God's covenant with Moses, incense served as the symbol of the prayers of God's people. As prayers were offered, the priests would light incense. And the symbolism was that just as the smoke of that incense would waft about the air of that throne room, so too the prayers of the saints were being drifted up. They were being lifted up and being wafted before the throne of our God. God is attending to our prayers. God is being exposed to, by symbolism, our prayers. Here, the burning of incense signifies the prayers of all the saints, and the prayers of the saints, like the smoke from the incense, are being wafted. They're coming before the God of heaven. The picture here, the symbol here is that God is not only hearing our prayers, but that God is listening intently to our prayers and is pleased to move on our behalf. God hushes all of heaven for a half an hour to hear and to attend to the prayers of his people. It is that when you and I pray, God is not on the throne multitasking, flipping through his news feed while overhearing our prayers. It is not that our prayers are heard over the rumblings and the murmurings of a multitude gathered in heaven, but that God brings a holy hush to heaven that he might more than hear but listen intently to the prayers of his people. I have three sons. What that means is that there's a constant roar at my house. It's never quiet. And it's, it's almost eerie if it ever gets quiet. The TV's going in three different rooms, all of which are open to the main living area. Brandy is always washing dishes at the key television watching time of my day. So there's the sound of the sink running. The laundry room door is never closed. 
and the washer is always running. There's always rumbling in my house. And usually I'm okay with that. I'm watching television or I'm engaged in a conversation or I'm talking on the phone over the roar. But from time to time, there's that call you've been waiting on. Or Brandy has something to say from the sink that's of great significance. Or perhaps one of the boys say something they weren't supposed to say. And I will say, hush! And everything for a moment gets quiet. To see the play, to see the scene, to hear the phone call. Something demands exclusive attention. That is the picture of verses 1 through 6. God hushes heaven that he might listen intently to the very prayers of his people. And don't miss this. This is often missed. What unfolds in the verses that follow, the judgment of God that comes after this holy hush in heaven is God's direct response to the pleas of his people. The Exodus imagery is all over this passage. In the same way that God heard the cries of Israel in their Egyptian bondage, all of heaven stops that God might hear the cries of his people, persecuted and oppressed, and immediately God begins to move to bring about their deliverance. We have found our place of refuge, our place of safety behind the blood of the Lamb. What John is saying here is that God is poised to move in great acts of judgment to bring about the deliverance of his people, the salvation, the redemption, the liberty of his people through these great acts of judgment. They have pled that God would vindicate their blood. And at long last, he will. First trumpet begins that section that I mentioned earlier is a long section that really needs to be treated collectively in order for us to gain a fair reading. Look to verse 7. The Bible says here, The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned up. The, the fraction that's emphasized in this series of judgment is one-third. If you can remember back weeks ago in our reading and study of that first series of judgments, the scrolls, the fraction of emphasis was one-fourth. So the camera John has fixed on the judgment of God is panning out so that more of what God is doing in terms of judgment can now be viewed by those of us who with eyes of faith see the vision that John shares. Even as the camera is panning out, there is a heightening intensity about the judgment that God is bringing against the world. I get asked often this question. This is kind of a sidebar. Do we read the book of Revelation literally? And, and I like to respond, no, we read the book of Revelation literarily, which I don't think is a word, but it's a good description for the way we read the book of Revelation. We read the book according to the conventions of apocalyptic literature. We read the book the way John intends us to read that. For instance, if, if, I, if I'm going through the office and I say, hey, some of us are going to lunch, or my thought is some of us are going to lunch and I want to invite someone to go, I say, hey, everybody's going. Do I literally mean everybody in the world is going to lunch? N no. And, if, and if, it, if we're going on my dime, I don't want everybody in the world to go to lunch, right? 
Occasionally, Revelation will speak in that way. It will use hyperbole in order to stress the severity of the judgment that is to come. I bring that up at this point because verse 7 says, all the green grass was burned up. Then when you get to verse 4 of chapter 9, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth. Well, I thought it was gone. If, if you're nitpicking the passage that way, you're missing the point of what John is saying. This is going to be a severe movement of God in great judgment. We read the passage according to the conventions of its genre. Verse 8, second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. I, I take this to be an expansion on that volcanic eruption imagery in Asia Minor's not so recent, uh, not, not so distant past. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they'd been made bitter. This is the kind of thing that can unfold in the aftermath of a great volcanic eruption. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were dark and a third of the day was without light and the night as well. Again, you have volcanic eruption imagery coupled together loosely with the imagery of the Exodus event. When ash is cast into the sky, there can be darkness over great portions of the day. In verse 13, John said, I looked again and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blast that the three angels are about to sound. Now, in chapter nine, things get really weird. Verse one, the Bible says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to the earth. The key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. I'll pause for just a moment. I think virtually everyone, it's almost a part of, it's a, it's a feature of the culture to understand this idea of Satan as a fallen angel falling from heaven to earth and then working in this satanic, demonic, oppressive way for the duration of his existence until cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. That kind of imagery is used here in our passage. There is a star that falls from heaven. But that star is clearly a person. He is identified in verse 1 as a him. And the key to the shaft of the abyss is given to him. Now, that is not to say that the key has been given to Satan. That is not to say that this individual described here is Satan. But it is to make the strong connection that exists between those identified as Abaddon and Apollyon later in our passage and satanic influence. In other words, the army that's about to be described is led by a leader who is under the direct influence of Satan and hell. He comes about in this vision in the same way that Satan comes about in the history of the earth. Verse two, he opened the shaft of the abyss. Smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke to the earth and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. Keep, 
camping here from time to time. But I don't know that we can say this enough. Here we have the counter to the mark of the beast imagery coming later in Revelation 13. Harm everyone except the ones who have the seal of God on their forehead. Now, what we've been noting along the way with reference to the mark of the beast matter is that no one takes the mark of the beast incidentally or accidentally. Like you're not going to one day go to hell and, and you didn't expect it and you didn't know it because you had an iPhone or a social security number or you got the COVID vaccine shot or something kind of crazy like that. Like there must be a conscious decision to take the mark of the beast. What's signified in one being marked on their forehead or being marked on their hand is that they identify with the beast in terms of the things that they believe and they identify with the beast in terms of the things that they do. The same can be said of bearing the mark of God. No one accidentally or incidentally bumps into getting saved. No one's going to gain access to heaven on the day of judgment and be surprised at that access. They're going to go in knowing that I am here on the exclusive merit of Christ crucified in my place and the power of his resurrection. You may go there saying, I don't deserve it. You will go there saying, I don't deserve it. But there will be no surprises about the judgment passed on that day. Our judgment will revolve around the perfect righteousness of God's only son, Jesus Christ. And we will stand boldly behind his blood on that day. No accidents here. There must be a conscious decision to identify with God by virtue of what we believe, which influences the actions that we take. Here, the people of God because of what they believe, have been marked. Not only have they been saved, but they will be kept through the judgment of God that is inevitable to come. Verse 5. They weren't permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months, which happens to be the length of a locust life. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it, they will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses equipped for battle. Something like gold crowns was on their head. Their faces were like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions so that with their tails, they had the power to harm people for five months. Later in our chapter, as we get to the end, we're told that they had tails that resemble snakes, which have heads and they inflict injury with them. Verse 11, they had as their king, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. There's still two more woes to come after this. Now, what in the world is happening in these verses? I have heard some very imaginative and creative interpretations of these verses. When you see the background, understand the background, the, the source for John's imagery, things become much, much simpler. For some reason, when we read the book of Revelation, we lose our minds. 
If you were studying the book of Ephesians this morning and you wanted to understand some of the background and detail being described by Paul, you would study the circumstances in Ephesus. Somehow we forget all about that step in the interpretive process when it comes to the book of Revelation. I'll tell you emphatically with great confidence what's being described in these verses. The Romans really for the duration of their history only had one enemy that they feared greatly. They were the Parthians. So much of the imagery that's assigned to the locust swarm in these verses is drawn from the garb of a Parthian service person. The Parthian military would wear these iron breastplates and they would be clothed in certain garments. They were presented in much of the terminology that you have used here in the few verses that we just read. Parthians are known in history for military or technological advancements and weapons of warfare, specifically the invention of the compound bow. If you're here as an archer, as a deer hunter, you have the Parthians to thank for that great invention of the compound bow, which is huge if you think about this. If you've got two armies and they're standing out there and they're a hundred yards apart, an army on the left side has a traditional bow that shoots 50 yards. An army on the right side has a bow, compound bow, that shoots 100 yards. If you're in the 50-yard army, you're in big trouble. Your gun will not even reach the ranks lined up across from you in battle array. And there the Parthians are firing, lobbing arrows into your lines. The Parthians were, in addition to inventing the compound bow, great horsemen. And so what they would do is they would line up and they would ride into their enemy forces, firing away with their compound bows as they went. Now, if you've ever ridden a horse, you know that once horses begin to go in a group, they go in a group. When we, when we were boys, when we were kids, daddy always had horses. And when the young boys were able to get together and ride, we, we would always wait for that moment when someone was goofing off or not paying attention or they kicked their feet out of the stirrups so that they weren't steady in this. And we were walking along just slowly. And, and if you notice that as a boy, you would automatically kick your horse and make it take off because their horse would too. And then they would usually roll off the back. And it was the kind of thing that boys do. Horses will just stay together. So the Parthians developed a way of utilizing the horse's impulse to continue on beyond their enemy lines. They would just run through their enemy lines. And when they did, these Parthians would turn around in the saddle and they would fire shots with their compound bows back into their enemy line so that they were on the attack both coming and going. That's precisely what's symbolized in the imagery of a horse that's charging hard ahead, a locust charging hard ahead, but who has behind him a tail with a stinger like a scorpion. He can get you coming and he can get you going. Now, it's not necessary that we interpret or understand John describing the Parthians attacking the Romans. What, what he's evoking here is the most dreadful imagery possible from this first century context. He's saying what you have always feared, God is going to use. He's going to bring that to bear against you in this great act of judgment. Verse 11 says that they had as their king 
the angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Abaddon in Hebrew means destruction, and Apollyon in the Greek means destroyer. The interesting thing about Apollyon, the Greek name for this king, is that it derives from the word Apollos, which is the name of one of Greek's gods. In fact, it is one of the primary gods in the pantheon of Greek gods. What's interesting about that is that it's the very god that both Nero and Domitian, emperors of Rome, identified most closely with. In fact, there seem to have been points in time at which Nero and Domitian said that they were themselves the incarnation of the god Apollos. They are destruction. They are destroyer. Now, I couple those together here because there's so much similarity between the two. But the emperor who is reigning at the time of John's revelation is Domitian. There were some that referred to Domitian for his severity against Christians as Nero back from the dead. Later in the book of Revelation, there is this beast imagery. And there's one passage in particular that refers to the death of that beast and what seems his resurrection. What's being referred to historically is the death of Nero, who killed and persecuted Christians. He's responsible for the martyrdom of both Peter and Paul. He had the bodies of saints pitched on poles around the city of Rome that the, the way would be lit for entertainment as the people of Rome traveled. They said when Domitian came to the throne, to the emperorship of Rome, it was as though Nero had come again. Domitian is the beast of the revelation. Operating under satanic influence is indicated by this description of having fallen from heaven with the key to the abyss, letting loose all of hell that the judgment of God might come against even his own nation. Abaddon and Apollyon, destruction and the destroyer are coming and they're led by, they're ruled over, they're lorded over by the very leader of the Roman Empire itself. Verse 13, the Bible says, the sixth angel blew his trumpet from the four horns of the gold altar that is before God. I heard a voice say, say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who are prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses in my vision. The horsemen had breastplates that were fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and from their mouths came fire and smoke and sulfur. Again, John is taking the most fearsome, the most dreadful imagery from his first century context and, and, and making application of that in order to stress the severity of this judgment that is, that is coming. Even back into the Old Testament, everyone, all of the civilized nations, the civilized world, feared the peoples of the Far East from beyond the Euphrates. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you just say something is from the East, what you're saying symbolically is that something bad, something evil, something that has the potential to be incredibly dangerous is coming. When Israel was carried away captive in the Babylonian exile, where did the Babylonians come from? They came from the east. They came from the region of the Euphrates River. 
The picture here symbolically is of four angels who are stationed at the great river Euphrates, preventing those fearsome, dreadful armies of the east from passing over and invading with great violence the civilized people of the west. But God would let them loose with the sounding of this sixth trumpet. Now, the description of this army, this vast army of 200 million, which is an insane number for the first century. We think of 200 million, there are 330 million people in America. We can sort of put our arms around that. We can comprehend that kind of number. There aren't that many people in the Roman Empire. The idea here is that there is such a swarm of people. This is an insurmountable army that comes from the most fearful of places and that is coming in the most dreadful of ways. They cannot be stopped. They will not be beat. They bear the sword of God's wrath against the oppressor of his people. But here's what I want you to see. And I think this is critical to understanding all of the book of Revelation. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us in terms of application. Look to the last sentence in verse 17. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and from their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, by the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads, and they inflict injury with them. What sense in the world does it make to say that the power of a horse is in his mouth? power of a horse in reality is not in his mouth. But symbolically here, what's being expressed is that although the imagery of Revelation 8 and 9 is martial imagery or military imagery, the war that's being fought is in reality a war of words, not a war fought with weapons. Y'all tracking with me? Because this is huge. There has been for the last 200 years in America... This fixation on this war of Armageddon and fascination with the movement of armies and, and international diplomacy and what might happen and who's aligned against who and where are the alliances. And it may prove in the course of time that those things have bearing in the unfolding of God's judgment, but that is not what the book of Revelation is about. This is about countering the imperial propaganda of the day with the message of the gospel. Those horses may sting you with their tails. They come working acts of violence, but their most deadly maneuver is what comes forth from their mouth. It is their message that ultimately kills not only the flesh, but one's very soul. It is by succumbing to imperial propaganda, believing the message of the empire, that your very soul is compromised for all eternity, which is a far greater issue than anything that might happen at the tip of a bow and arrow. It's a war of words that ultimately must be fought. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal in nature. It is the words of our mouth. 
as we hold fast to the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and the message of the gospel that says that God has so loved the world, he sent his only son as evidence of this reality, that Jesus would live without sin and die in our place on the cross and be raised again the third day. This is how the kingdom advances, never at the tip of the sword, never at the end of the gun, never by our influence or our power. It's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. This is how the gospel advances. All of the military imagery of the book of Revelation is purely symbolic. The way the kingdom goes forward is by the confession of our mouth. The way the kingdom advances is by the preaching of the gospel. The great conflict is between the propaganda of the empire and the confession of our mouth. Now, we don't have to make great logical leaps to get to very direct applications of this concept for us. And I wonder how many people there are in this congregation on a Sunday morning in a Southern Baptist church in the Bible Belt of America who are more consistently influenced by the propaganda of our day than by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see so much uproar and, and, and pushback now. What, what, you're, what you're seeing What's being expressed in the full-on embrace and celebration of dysphoria in various areas of life and thrust upon your children is no more than a mere overt expression of the more subtle things that have been happening, happening to propagandize and indoctrinate children and adults for hundreds and even thousands of years. It was happening in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago under the reign of Domitian. And it's happening in America even today. If you're not discipling your children, you rest assured someone is. Their favorite television shows, the music that they listen to, the books that they read, the 24-hour news cycle. All of us are being unduly influenced by the culture we find ourselves swimming around in. And what's the question is, where the rubber meets the road for us, what must be determined is how much we'll be influenced by the imperial propaganda of the day, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, if, if you think, listen, if you think that we're going to pull together our collective influence and power, that with sidearms and a strong defense, we're going to fend off the message of the moment. You, you have misunderstood, you have misunderstood the agenda of our Savior Jesus. And you have discounted the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we have at our disposal the weapon of our warfare, the confession of our mouth, and the preaching of the gospel is undefeated and undefeatable. There are certainly future implications for what is described in chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation, but so much of what's being described is long since in our rearview mirror historically. Think about what unfolds in the years after John's vision. Less than 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the world's greatest empire, the Roman Empire, was forced to capitulate and ultimately succumb to the influence of the Christian church. These uneducated, untrained, unarmed, and unskilled men won over an empire 
not with their swords or their spears or compound bows, but because they would not flinch at the notion that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no man may come unto the Father except by him because they were willing to lay down their lives at the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you prop yourself up on your self-defense, your sidearms, your tactical maneuvering, but you're fighting a losing battle. Or you cast yourself at the cross and hold fast to your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And though they may take your physical life, Jesus will give it back in the resurrection and all the more. What we have at our disposal is an undefeated and undefeatable weapon of warfare. We need only lean into the power it provides. Preach the gospel. Confess your faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are more than conquerors through one who has overcome the world. This is the message of Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Now, we find in verses 20 and 21 that, that this judgment that we've been reading about in these two chapters is it's restorative. In other words, it's intended to redeem or to restore. It's not exclusively punitive or punishment. We know that because of these verses. Listen to verse 20 and 21. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which are not able to see, hear, or walk. And they didn't repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their theft. They didn't repent. They didn't, they didn't turn back. There's an element of punishment in the judgment of God anywhere and everywhere it comes. But the grace of God, at least in the judgments as described in chapters 8 and 9, is that the hope is that the hearts of those in anguish under the judgment of God would repent of their sin, come away from their idolatry, make themselves subject to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. But they don't. There's going to come a time, and Revelation tells the story of this window of opportunity closing. There's going to come a time when the judgment of God will have an exclusively punitive purpose and not redemptive. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation, and I'm thankful that it does. You ought to be glad as well. The offer of the gospel is full and free, but it's a one-day-only offer. Revelation is progressively telling the story of the window of opportunity for faith and repentance closing eternally. This judgment came, and they would not repent. So fixed, so cemented in the propaganda of the day, that they could not and would not hear and yield to the truth of the gospel. You talk about propaganda, propaganda in our day, there are things that come to mind, I understand that. But the ways that I am more often frustrated with the influence of the culture are in more foundational or basic ways. It's, it's not the things I hear being said today that cause concern for me. Anyone with eyes to see can see the perverted, distorted, twisted nature 
in the evolution of debauchery in our culture. What concerns me are the more subtle things that were being said in, in my day, spoken like a real old guy, that were just accepted and celebrated. Follow your heart. Be who you are. Follow your dreams. These things sound so noble. And there are many of you in this room who have been hoodwinked by the propaganda of your day and consequently blinded to the full impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your heart is deceptive. This whole notion of do, do what we determine to be right, there is a source of moral authority outside of ourself. It's called the Bible. It's written by the God of heaven. Certain determinations have been made. Regardless of how you feel today in response to that or not, the day is coming when a severe judgment will be passed. You may feel as though it's cleared across the road, but if you cross McInvale headed to your car this afternoon and there's a big truck coming, whether you like the way it feels or not, you will be dead. There is a day of judgment coming that does not account for or even care about how you feel about a certain issue or the extent to which you have bought the imperial propaganda of your day. The hard and unmovable truth is that a day of judgment is coming and the only safe place to hide on that great day is behind the blood of the lamb. You must come to him in faith and repentance. No accidental Christians no accidental taking of the mark of the beast, but a conscious decision to commit ourselves to him in faith and repentance. That is the message of these two chapters. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and for the invitation that it provides us that we might, under the weight of your far more subtle judgments in our life, repent of our sin realize the emptiness that comes with following after the propaganda of our day or any day. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to well discern the truthfulness of the gospel. Help us to know that peace can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Help us to drink not from the broken cisterns of this world, but from the fountain of the water of life that flows freely from Emmanuel's veins. God, I pray that you would convict of sin, that you grant the discernment to know what is good and what is, what is wrong, what is, what is evil and what is right. God, help us, Lord, to be able to make certain determinations to discern the truth of the gospel. God, I pray that you would grant conviction of sin, conviction of the immeasurable beauty of your son, Jesus. Give us eyes to behold him even as he is. Call us to yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name.